Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hidden Histories. Today's episode is with Joanne Paul, all about a lady called Anne Dowrich, who lived in the 16th century and produced a long, epic narrative poem all about the wars of religion going on in France. So far, Anne's work has been categorised as female piety, a representation of uh, feminine literary work in the time. But Joanne looks at it from a very, very different perspective, and she shares a fascinating take on Anne's politics and Anne's life. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Joanne Paul, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast because in real life we're actually quite good friends, so it's nice to see you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, we're gonna, we, we've been on the phone for about 40 minutes before even recording this, so I think um, it's, it's good that we're started. So we're going to talk about so a subject of some of your more recent research, which is a lady called Anne Dowrich. Now, who is Anne Dowrich? Because I've never heard of her. And what do we so far know about her life? Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about Anne Dowrich. As you, you said, this is newly emerging research for me. I've really only just started on this. Um, and it makes sense that you've not heard of her because not many people have. And it's sort of part of my mission uh, to get her name out there. Uh, she was a, a writer in the Elizabethan period. She wrote one text in particular called The French History, which was published in 1589. Beyond that, she was also a minister's wife, um, had about six children. So she was she was a busy lady. Um, but it's this 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 book, The French History, that I'm particularly interested in. And I think that other people should be interested in as well. Wow, six children and she managed to write a book. That's pretty impressive and I already want to know more about her. <laughs> I mean, speaking of which, when we think about women as uh, as writers or thinkers in in, um, in this period in the 16th century, pretty few and far between, largely because having said children, having to work within the home, having a lot of responsibilities, um, women didn't have seemingly have as much time to, to do things, to record their lives in the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. is that a generalisation? What what were opportunities like for women, especially as writers in this period? Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, she is she is a bit of a rarity as as a female writer in the 16th century. I think time. You're absolutely right. Is is a factor in that, and I think expectation um, expectation was quite low that that a woman would write something, especially a woman outside of the court. Um, you know, probably if we really thought about it, we could think of a few women who, who wrote things in this period. Elizabeth I 
being one of them, uh, Catherine Parr being another. But of course, they're both queens. Um, and so they had uh, very uh, elaborate educations. They had access. Um, they had influence. They had intellectual circles around them that we, that we know about. But someone like Anne Dowrich, um, she lives in Devon. As I said, um, she's a minister's wife. She comes from a sort of middling family. I mean, it, they, they had some power, but in Devon, um, they weren't part of the court. And so someone like that writing in the period and getting published um, is, is quite rare because women wrote things, but most of the time they stayed in manuscript. So the few that we have um, that have survived, um, we're aware of, there were probably more women writing in manuscript that, you know, manuscript gets lost, doesn't it? Um, but for someone to have published is very, very rare in the period. Do you think that's a misogyny thing? So I'm thinking forward a couple of centuries and I'm thinking all of the pseudonyms that um, that female writers used. Do you think that that applies to this century as well? Absolutely. Um, women were meant to have two virtues in particular, and that was, of course, chastity and um, silent obedience. Um, and so entering the public sphere in that way uh, was, was not part of what a woman was supposed to do, especially engaging in something political. Um, and I think this is a very political text, um, and we can talk about the ways in which it's very political in a second. But to engage politically was, was especially something that a, was, a woman wasn't trained to do and wasn't expected to do. And in fact, it goes the other way as well, that, that they could be condemned for doing it. And so the fact that Dowrich goes ahead and makes a political intervention, I think, is, is very rare, very unique, um, and very interesting. What women were supposed to write about, supposed to, you can't see my air quotes, but I am making air quotes, what they were <laughs> supposed to do, um, would be to write about more sort of personal piety. And what's interesting about this text is that um, historians have tended to put it in that box because she's a woman. Um, and so they've tended to see it as a personal, pious text because she's a woman, not as a political text um, because women weren't writing in that mode. And so this 16th century idea about wi what women should be writing about has in a way almost persisted. And so she's been put in this category of, of a pious religious writer, even though I think it's a very radical political text. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because... I mean, maybe it's just because of my influences now. When I was doing the, the research for this podcast, what I felt was that it was um, quite radical and quite political. And I would never have considered it as a text that, that, that sort of smacked of piety. In what ways do you think that it was political? And do you think that its politics gained traction, though despite the fact that she was a lesser known female writer? Yeah, um, so there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, absolutely, I, I think um, we have missed the politics of it. Um, just, just one quote from a fairly recent historian has, has put it that her work contains more piety than inspiration. Um, this idea that it, it is so pious. And certainly it's, it's about religion in various ways. But the idea that in the 16th century, politics was separated from religion. I mean, of course, we know that that can't be true. That's a real historian gag moment. We just both give a little chortle. Like, yes. <laughs> How silly. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, of course, politics has to go with religion in, in this period. It's a text um, about the French wars of religion. 
but it's written um, from an English point of view in the context of Elizabethan England, um, which of course in the 1580s, we've got um, a real tension between um, Catholics and Protestants. This is the period in Elizabethan history um, where the Elizabethan compromise, you know, this idea that she comes in and, and sort of makes peace between Catholics and Protestants starts to really fall apart. Um, this is the period where you have concern about Catholic plots, Catholics are being tortured, um, and we also have the rise of, of Puritans, and Dowrich and her husband are Puritans. So they're really trying to advance a, a sort of ultra-Protestant cause, um, if, if you will. So her text is, is really aimed as a, as a political intervention on a number of levels. Um, domestically, she's trying to argue for um, the defense of Puritans. There, there was an equation often of both Catholics and Puritans as sort of extremists on opposite ends of the spectrum. She's trying to argue against that. Internationally, she's trying to make an argument about English intervention in France to protect Protestants um, who are being uh, persecuted there. And I think there's also a bit of, of, if not an argument, at least a sort of implication that someone like Dowrich knows what she's talking about and that her advice is important and should be heard. Uh, the text is dedicated to her brother, who's a member of parliament. And the dedication, while laudatory, is also sort of cutting. There's, there's this feeling behind the dedication that she's saying, you have to do better that you're, you're being swayed by, you know, all of this politics and, and you're losing your connection to what matters and you need to take it up a notch. Um, and she's, of course, outside of it. And I feel this sort of frustration from her that she, she knows what's what, um, but it's her brother who sat there. He's at the table, you know, and, and, and she needs to remind him um, from, from her position sort of of exclusion of, of what he needs to be fighting for. So it's very much written, you think, as a polemic, which in my mind is very different to what you'd, as you were saying earlier, the sense of this very pious female text. It's hugely different. I know you, you, you were talking about her sort of schooling, as if she was schooling her brother. But do you think that she went further than that? Do you think that it managed to influence the elite, even though she wasn't a member of the nobility herself? It's a really interesting question. Um, the question of influence, well, there's a number of things that become very difficult when you're studying a female writer. Um, understanding their context, you know, we don't have her date of birth, we don't have her date of death, um, we don't know what her education was. And then when it comes to tracing influence, it can get really difficult because people just don't tell us <laughs> when they're reading her work. Um, they don't want to cite her or um, sort of acknowledge her. Um, so tracing influence becomes really difficult. Uh, it's difficult to know who read her text. There's a couple things we do know. We do know that England did intervene in, in France shortly after her book came out. Whether that was through her influence or not um, is, is difficult to know, but certainly they did. When you say intervene in France, are you talking about the wars of religion that were happening in France at the time. Was that, am I right in saying that that's when there was a huge Huguenot in, uh, influx into England? Absolutely. So uh, the French history is really one of the points of it is, is to suggest that the Huguenots, the Protestants in France who were being persecuted, were martyrs um, and that they needed, needed defending. 
And so shortly after her text is published, a, a Protestant comes to the throne of France and he uh, needs support to keep that throne because, of course, of, of the Catholics who are, are looking to, uh, to prevent him. Um, and England does intervene in that fight and they help secure the, the throne for this, this new Protestant king. He ends up converting to Catholicism later on, um, but that's, that's a longer story. Um, certainly, she, it, it does seem that um, she at least uh, gets her way, whether or not she, in fact, influenced that decision. Yeah, yeah. You have actually touched on how her work then reflects the context of the period. When she was writing, was there still this extreme level of tension between Catholics and Protestants that was so rife in the in the 16th century? I mean, so rife, it was... It was a fallout, really, from the Reformation, wasn't it? Completely. Um, Anne Dowrich is is really a child of that conflict. Um, we don't have her year of birth, um, but it was probably in the 1550s. Um, and so um, Henry VIII dies in 1547, and his son, Edward VI, comes to the throne, who is very Protestant. Um, shortly thereafter, Mary I, Bloody Mary, <laughs> comes to the throne. She's very Catholic. And then finally, you get Elizabeth and, and at least the suggestion of compromise. And Anne is, is raised in that, that sort of ping pong era <laughs> between Catholic and Protestant. Um, and then there are a few decades of, of at least sort of religious quiet. We now know it was a sort of simmering tension rather than a compromise. Um, but the 1580s, so her book comes out in 1589, the 1580s are full of, of religious conflict. Um, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, which which is religiously motivated in many ways. Um, she, a potential Catholic claimant to the English throne. The Spanish Armada, 1588, um, in many ways a response to the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, um, again is an attempt um, from a Catholic power to, to take over England and, and bring it back within the Catholic fold. Um, and the 1580s are when we really see this, this spy network emerging, um, trying to root out Catholics and, and the torture of Catholics. Uh, that idea of, of, of um, Cecil, for instance, is sitting at this sort of network of, of spies and, yeah. and bringing Catholics in. So it's a period of, of intense religious tension. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So she's a fascinating character because she represents a lot of that, but she represents it from a very extreme side of it as well. So she is the sort of new age of um, Protestantism and Puritanism because I've certainly always associated Puritans with the 17th century rather than the 16th century. So in her work, that must be fascinating in itself to see that emergence of that very um, extreme um, faith what sort of things does she what sort of things does she describe and what do you think you found the most enlightening about her what's interesting about the french history is we don't get a significant sense actually of that puritanism um we can see that reflected in uh, other work particularly that she um contributes to to one of her her husband's works um the french history um what what I think would strike most people in reading this text, and I do hope that people read this text, the language that's that's there, I think, is, is really uh, the political language as opposed to the religious language. So she talks a very great deal about treason. Uh, another thing that we might associate with the 17th century is um, this idea of treason being committed by the king. Of course, Charles I um, is accused of, of, of treason, despite the fact that he is king. Treason previously had only been um, something that be, could be committed against the king, not by the king. But she has the king of France being accused of treason, which is this really interesting early, I think, instance of, of treason committed by uh, uh, the crown as opposed to against it. The other thing that I think is very striking about this text is the visceral violent language that's used in it, um, which again, we might not associate with this idea of 16th century female piety. Um, it's extremely violent, um, very gory. <laughs> um, it's, it's strikingly so. And all of that is, is part of trying to demonstrate how these, um, the, the, the Protestants who are being persecuted were in fact martyrs. And, and trying to, um, she talks about edifying her readers, trying to stir up this sense of, of uh, sympathy with, with these French um, Protestants. Um, but it's actually, it's, it's very Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, the, the events that take place, um, as well as the descriptions of them, um, are intensely violent. Does it sort of remind you of some of the earlier long kind of verse poetry I'm so, I, so that in my mind that was like I was thinking Dante for some reason do you think that she might have read some things like Dante's Inferno possibly what it immediately um reads like is Fox's Book of Martyrs um or the Acts and Monuments and she does seem to allude to that text quite clearly in it 
And of course, what that has is not only very violent language, but woodcuts. <laughs> there's, there's actual images of, of um, these uh, violent acts uh, in that text. And, and that text was um, ordered at least to be in every parish across the country. So she certainly was aware of that. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, what's another thing that I think is absolutely fascinating about the French history is it is all in verse. It's, it's a rhyming poem throughout. So this idea of an epic poem is absolutely part of what she's she's constructing. And even the, 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 the framing of it, she sets it up as this narrator walking through the woods, um, notably a male narrator walking through the woods who encounters this French exile. And then the French exile in turn, also a man, narrates the events um, that, that make up um, her text. And so she's sort of behind these two framing devices of male narrators. Um, which is which is an interesting choice, and I think brings us back to that expectation of of women's and women's voices, in particular. Um, but it's a very poetic framing um, for for the text, and it is this long epic poem. That's very that opening. That's very Chaucer and Book of Duchess. Yeah. Narrator meets the man in black in the woods. Yeah. So so again, we we don't know what she read. We don't know um, how she was educated. We know that she was educated, obviously, um, and her father left money specifically in his will for her education. But just reading it, you can see these influences. And so you can sort of sort of retrospectively construct what she must have been aware of. I mean, even the poem itself, without adding to the fact that she's a female writer that is not of noble birth or not of, you know, a courtly circle... I mean, even the poem itself, I've, I'm really surprised that this is not better known. And I mean, why do you think, in comparison to other sort of canonical poets of the time, even female poets, I mean, you even have writers like Christine de Pizan, who are, are, are far better known. Why do you think that she's sort of been lost in history a little bit? I think it has a lot to do with what we were saying earlier, with this idea that it's it's pious it's religious and therefore not uh, as of as much interest. Um, I mean, the poetry is 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 so so. <laughs> um, you you don't you don't read Dowrich for um, exceptional turns of phrase. Um, I think it's it's a really interesting text. Um, it's it's not necessarily the best poetry one has ever read, um, and I think that has often also sort of maligned her historically. But there, there has been a, a bit of revival of interest in her um, in the 60s and 70s with um, the growth of, of women's history. There was this recovery project of trying to recover women's voices. But what was interesting about that was it really approached these female writers as, as women, you know, uh, of course, because it was a sort of feminist project of recovery. But I think that also sort of then siloed her into this women's writing is pious writing is personal writing sort of box. Um, and it's only very, very recently that we're starting to see work on her that's taking this political perspective seriously, that's focusing um, in particular on how she read Machiavelli. She's one of the first instances in, in English print we have of somebody um, publishing and, and commenting on Machiavelli 
and and taking lines straight out of Machiavelli and, and publishing them. Machiavelli wasn't published in, in English until the middle of the 17th century. She's publishing wow. phrases from him in 1589. And, and this has been almost entirely overlooked. Her literary intervention as well. She um, There has been work done to show that she influenced Christopher Marlowe and um, that there are connections between uh, her presentation of uh, Catherine de' Medici and women in Shakespeare, um, people like Lady Macbeth. Um, so this is, is just in the last, I would say, 10 years or so, starting to become something we're aware of. Um, but it's, it's such a still niche subject. Um, so one of the things I'm um, going to be doing is, is publishing this as a modern edition. Because I think the other reason why we uh, aren't as aware of her is because you can only access her book in the 16th century edition, which if you're very, very lucky and you have a subscription to early English books online, you can read in facsimile. Um, but other than that, people don't have access to her work. So I'm working on, on making it more accessible. I'm modernizing it so that people can pick it up and read it. Oh, that's amazing. So it's kind of like, in, a, in the same way, I would say that this is like the modern Marjorie Kemp, in a sense that you're kind of taking it on board and going, this is actually a really important work. It can tell us a lot. And I'm going to republish it. That's so exciting. So when will, do you know when that's going to be available for people to read? Probably sometime next year. I mean, we live we live in a, a hard to predict world at the moment, um, but I'm I'm doing some intense work on it over this summer, and hopefully it'll be available sometime next year. But uh, watch this space, I guess. Oh, that's super exciting! And what a thing to do to sort of revive a voice like that and give it a fresh perspective and taking her out of this as you say, this box of pious female writers that they just write for themselves and for, for pious and very gentle purposes. I think that's a really, that sounds like a really exciting project. Thank you so much for talking to me about it and sharing all of that. A nice little um, intro to the, to the project. And now people, you've, I'm sure you've wet people's appetites and you've certainly wet mine to, um, to read more about her and so we can look out for your uh, forthcoming book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.